0: So we're continuing this study of Luke's gospel, and we're having to move fast because Lynn is only six weeks long. Uh, So we kicked it off a few weeks ago. Uh, Last week, Roy preached from Luke chapter 6, and today we're moving ahead uh, to Luke chapter 10. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we find what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's gospel, we find a condensed version of that in chapter 6, called the Sermon on the Plain. It's much shorter. It's a little bit different. The wording is not uh, the same, but it's very similar. But in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Uh, This week we were uh, on vacation, and I started reading an excellent book, and I'm going to recommend it to you. It's written by Arthur Brooks, who is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and the book is called Love Your Enemies. And this is a very smart guy uh, who's written a number of books in his career, but in this book he's talking about the reality and the fact that we now seem to live in a culture of contempt. And, um, And it's not necessarily a healthy thing, but Arthur Brooks argues that the only real antidote to a culture of contempt is love, kindness, and warm-heartedness. And I think that Jesus would agree, based on what he says in the Sermon on the Plain. When we have contempt for other people, it's not healthy. Uh, Contempt has been uh, tracked by marriage psychologists to be the number one thing that leads to problems in divorce and marriage. If you have contempt that is not unpacked, that is not dealt with, that festers and grows over the years, then it will lead to problems in your marriage. If you have contempt in a family dynamic or in a friendship, it will lead to problems over time. And so what Brooks is arguing is that we live in this culture of contempt and everybody, whether they realize it or not, can play a part in trying to make it better trying to spread love and warm-heartedness within our culture, into our relationships, into our society. On Ash Wednesday, which was uh, two and a half weeks ago, I came into the staff meeting, and this was when we were about to start the series on Luke, beginning the Lenten season, and I asked our staff, I said, what do you think Jesus' main priorities were? And we have a very smart staff, and so here's some of what they said. Love God, love neighbor. Be selfless. Heal through love. Seek justice. Save the lost. Reach out to those on the margins of society. Cultivate meaningful relationships in your life. No matter what happens, remember that you always have hope for another day. Learn to surrender sometimes because you can't control everything. Jesus' priority was the kingdom of God. And we live that. Through the great commandment and the great commission. That's some of what they had to say. Pretty good stuff, right? When we study the Gospels, especially Luke's Gospel, it becomes very clear that one of Jesus' primary teaching methods was the use of parables. And we can define a parable in a couple different ways, but one definition that I like is an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. Or, or to put that another way, parables allow us to look at the ordinary things in life, things that we see every day on a regular basis, and gain extraordinary insight about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus used parables to clarify his teachings. He used parables as a way of illustrating what he was trying to say, uh, the points that he was trying to make. The parables were, were spoken. They were not written down until years later. <clears throat> Many scholars. Even argue that that Jesus thought of some of these on the spur of the moment, which if you think of the depth of these parables is simply amazing. So he'd be on a hillside and he'd say, you know, a sower went out to sow because there was a, a farmer in the background who was out sowing. The parable of the Good Samaritan, which is our scripture for this morning, is probably the most famous parable in all of the Gospels. A lawyer stands up to test Jesus. you got to love it when lawyers stand up to test you. I love lawyers. They like to challenge you. They ask the hard questions. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus says, okay. You've given the right answer. Do this and you shall live. But the lawyer, remember he's a lawyer, is not satisfied. Lawyers are never satisfied sometimes. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the parable of the good Samaritan. In a book that she published a couple years ago, Vanderbilt New Testament scholar who's lectured at this church uh, a number of times over the years, Amy Jo Levine talks about this lawyer in Luke's gospel. She says this, how far off is this lawyer? He's thinking in terms of a single action rather than a life of righteousness. He thinks of eternal life as a commodity to be inherited or acquired rather than a gift that's freely given. He's focused on his own salvation when he should be focused on loving God and loving neighbor, honoring parents, not stealing. And he's asking somewhat of an obnoxious question to which he already knows the answer. But Jesus is not fooled. Jesus is on this guy. It was widely known back in that day, just to set the context of this story, that the stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho was very treacherous. It was dangerous. It was very steep. It was also downhill. Jerusalem is located somewhere around 2300 feet above sea level. Jericho located 1300 feet below sea level. So you're dropping almost 4000 feet when you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So on this road, picture this, there are robbers There are bandits, there are people that are up to no good, and so people knew you don't travel this road alone because something bad might happen to you. Somebody could attack you, somebody could rob you, somebody could do something to you, and that's exactly what happens in this story. The man is attacked, he's beaten, he's left to die on the side of the road. And then Jesus says there are three people that come along And they see that this man is hurt. A priest, a Levite, and then a Samaritan. And I've always thought that these three people in this parable represent three different types of religious people in our culture today. Three different types of Christians in our culture today. So first, let's start with the priest. The priest saw this man lying there in need. He was beaten, he was hurt, and he passes by on the other side of the road. I think the priest... Represents those who would consider themselves highly religious, but who do not understand what religion is really all about. In that day, there were lots of rules regarding purity and cleanliness. And so if if a priest were to touch a a, a dead body or a corpse, and there's a good chance that the priest thought this man was, was dead then he would become unclean and he couldn't go and perform the rituals that he was uh, supposed to be performing. So it might be that the priest felt sorry for the man, he he, he felt bad for him, but he didn't want to risk coming into contact with him because he wanted to be able to carry out his priestly duties. So he just had convinced himself that he had a good excuse and he passed by on the other side of the road. And there are many people that are like this today. Uh, They see people from a distance who are in pain, who are hurting, who are suffering, but they cannot bring themselves to get involved in the messiness of helping. It might cost them something. Uh, It might make them uncomfortable. It, It might cause them to have to get out of their ordinary routine. And so they go on doing their own thing, passing by on the other side of the road, their side of the tracks, their side of town, and they forget about the person who's in help, who's in need, who needs help. Secondly, we have the Levite. And Jesus tells us that the Levite does something a little bit different. He actually comes over and he looks at the man, he, 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 he sees him. He, he considers the possibility of helping him. Uh, he examines the situation, but he too decides to, to move on and leave this man. There, hurt, beaten, struggling, in pain. I mean, the Levite hesitates, but then he moves on. Now, there might be an explanation for this. It was uh, common knowledge in that day. Listen to this uh, part of the story. Sometimes on that stretch of road back in that day, decoys would be planted and somebody would pretend that they had been beaten or robbed and they would be laying down and then when somebody would stop to help, other people would run out and attack the people that had stopped to help. And so maybe this is what the Levite was thinking about. If I help this person, I'm by myself Then maybe I too will end up like that person. And I've said this many times before but it's very frustrating but the decoys and the fakes in the world have ruined benevolent assistance for a lot of good people that are in need. It seems like there there are a lot of people that are out to game the system and people have a hard time trying to decide for themselves if this is a person who is in genuine need or somebody who is just putting on a front to to, to make money. And I think it's unfortunate because there are people out there that are hurting and, and in need and sometimes... We can become so jaded because we've been lied to or ripped off that we don't stop to help them. And I don't know about you, but that makes me a little bit angry and frustrated. A few years ago, probably been five or six years ago now, when we were living in the parsonage right here behind the church, one night I I, I took the the trash. We, we would just throw our trash in the, in the church dumpster. It was actually closer than rolling a can all the way out to the street. So I was taking the trash out and um, it was like 8.30 at night and a big old pickup truck diesel pulls through the back of the church parking lot and this guy rolls down his window and he goes, hey man, any way you can help me get back to uh, Williamson County? I've got 47 cents and I'm almost out of gas. Now, ironically, that same week, six years ago, I was preaching on this text. <laughs> and I sat there. First of all, I thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. And I reached into my pocket. It was just the two of us out there, right? It was dark. We, we, don't, we didn't have the lighting that we just got this year. And I reached in. I, I got a $5 bill, and I gave it to the guy. And I said, here you go, man. And he said, thank you. And he, and he, and he, and he sped off. But don't you think that I wondered what he did with the money? Don't you think I wondered if he really had 47 cents to his name? We all do. I think the Levite in this parable represents those who are fully aware of those who are in need, who might even come and check out the situation, but ultimately they don't do anything to help. The Levite represents those who are fearful or afraid of what might happen if they stop to help. Just like the priests, they don't want to be bothered. They, they, they don't want to be put out or, or inconvenienced. They, they might be curious as to what happened, but in the end, they are unwilling to do anything about it and they simply go on, move on with their own lives. But then Jesus tells us about the Samaritan. And in that day, Samaritans and Jews did not have the best relationship. There was contempt there between the two groups they were estranged. The quarrel and separation between the two had lasted for many, many years. And so oftentimes in that day, if a Jewish man did not keep the ceremonial laws and he would be branded or called a Samaritan, which was a derogatory term, And so most likely the the third man traveling down the road had been branded as such. He was called a Samaritan. He did not keep with the ceremonial law of the day. He was therefore viewed with great suspicion and great mistrust. He was unorthodox. He wasn't like the other two, but he was the one who actually stopped to help. He was the one who cared enough to do something about the situation. Luke tells us, that the man was moved with pity. Not only did he stop, but he bandaged up the wounds, he put the man on an animal, he took him to an inn in a town nearby, and he took care of him. And then the next day, what did he do? He gave the innkeeper some money and he said, here, please take care of him. If you spend more money than this, and I will repay you. So Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus adds, then go and do likewise. So what do we take away from the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, something that's really interesting about the parables is just when you think you've got all the lessons that there are to learn from the parables, there's a new one that will jump out at you. One takeaway is this, Jesus answers once and for all, who is our neighbor. Our neighbor is anyone who needs help. And there's a lot of people in this world, there's a lot of people in this town, there's a lot of people in this church, sanctuary this morning, who need help. And sometimes it's overwhelming. So we all must do our part. There are numerous philanthropic opportunities in this town. I mean, is anybody else amazed at that sometimes? You can be at an event, and you don't even know what it's supporting. You find out when you're there, and it's like, man, this town is generous. But even that can become overwhelming. But we're called to help our neighbor, and our neighbor is anyone who is in need. Secondly, another takeaway from this parable is that we can learn that real pity and real compassion in life should move us to action and to actually do something for others and not just feel sorry about them. Both the priest and the Levite felt sorry for the man who was in the ditch. And and feeling sorry for somebody is always the beginning, having empathy, having compassion, uh, that, that's where it starts, but that's not where it stops. So in this church, we can feel sorry for people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from, or you can go uh, over to the new home of the National Food Project, and you can volunteer to cook or go out on the trucks. You can feel sorry for those who can't afford a house, or you can go and work on the Habitat build that we just had a few weeks ago. We can feel sorry for kids that go to schools that are underfunded, where budgets are being cut, or you can go and be a reading buddy at Fall Hamilton, our partner school, right over by the fairgrounds, be a lunch partner. You can feel sorry for kids who live in poverty, or you can sponsor a Guatemalan child for $35 a month and help pay for their education and give their family an entirely different situation. Feeling sorry for people is always the first step. But then we have to go beyond that and we have to make a decision to help people who are in need. Compassion calls us to action. Uh, Giving to this church is a way to show compassion because we support multiple organizations through our outreach grant system and through our ministries and our mission. A third takeaway for me from this parable is that we must be willing to help other people in life even if they don't thank us and even if it means putting ourselves at some risk. My father, who is on our staff here, he served a church in Memphis for 35 years. And I think I told this, this one time before, but in 35 years, it was in midtown Memphis, if you're familiar with Memphis, the corner of Union and East Parkway, all kinds of benevolent requests would come through Lindenwood Christian Church. And, and, and my, my dad, like most ministers, would, would try to do something to help. People passing through town, people needing gas, people needing a, a hotel a hotel room. Um, and, and, and they would say, you know, when I get where I'm going, I'm going to repay you, I'm going to repay you. And he always said, no, don't repay me. All I want you to do all I want you to do is just write a thank you note to this church because they're the ones whose generosity makes this benevolence assistance possible. And in 35 years of ministry, do you know how many notes he got? Zero. On the benevolence front. But guess what? That's not why we help. We don't help to be recognized or to be thanked or to be Uh, awarded or honored, that's not why we help. We help because it's the right thing to do. The last takeaway that I want to pitch this morning is this. I want you to think about this parable, the Good Samaritan, but I want you to ask yourself this question. What if you are the one in the ditch? What if you were the one who has been robbed and beaten and left for dead? What if you are the one who is lying there helpless, waiting for somebody, anybody to come along and help you out? How would you feel if people just passed by on the other side of the road? Martin Luther King Jr. actually preached on this text the night before he was shot in Memphis. And I I believe his sermon was called uh, A View from the Ditch. But he argued that that there are so many people and even all of us ourselves are going to find times in life when we are in the ditch. And it may not be a a ditch that we saw coming. It might be a, a, a suicide in the family. It might be a divorce. It might be some kind of an addiction. You name it. And if we're in the ditch, don't we want somebody to help? Don't we want somebody to stop and take care of us and give us assistance? It's hard out there trying to decide who's legit and who's not. I wrestle with that. Who really needs the assistance and who doesn't? Because there is need everywhere. I'm going to close with a, a true story. Um, and every time I, I reflect upon the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think of this friend of mine uh, that this happened to. It happened 12, almost 12 years ago, right before I moved to Nashville, 2007. Um, it's a woman named Heather Fox. She was a member of our church uh, in Memphis. And uh, Heather Fox was a, 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 young, uh, a young woman. At the time, I believe she was probably in her early 30s. But she was going into Walgreens on Union Avenue in, uh, in Memphis. Um, and when she walked into Walgreens, there was a young mother who was holding a, a, a crying baby in a, in a diaper bag. And so she saw her going in, and Heather went in and got whatever she needed to get, and she came back out, and the mother was still standing there with the crying baby in the diaper bag. And so something just kind of... Uh, moved her with pity and uh, she asked the woman she said can I give you a ride and the woman said yes I just I just need to go down the street to the library that would be wonderful thank you and so she let the woman get in the back seat of her car uh, with the baby they weren't going far so she just held the baby in the diaper bag and they were going from Walgreens supposedly down to the library which was not that far away and right before they got to the place where they were gonna turn into the library, Heather looked in her rearview mirror and the woman pulled a pistol out of the diaper bag and told her to keep driving. And so she did. And she drove down closer to Midtown, actually not far from the church. And um, obviously Heather was freaking out because she had tried to help somebody and now she was being held at gunpoint. They got to an intersection and Heather decided this is a bad deal and I need to try to make a run for it. So they pulled up at an intersection, she flung open her door and she jumped out of the car, just gonna leave it in park. And the woman leaned up through the seats and shot her twice in the back. Got word of the story, went down to the med, which is where she had been. She had a couple of surgeries. Um, the bullets were really close to vital organs, but she survived. And so the next uh, morning, I was down there visiting her and I felt horrible for her. It had been on the news. It was a a big, kind of a big story, obviously. But I remember looking at her and, and, and just asking her, I said, I said, do you regret helping that woman? And she laid there with her bandages and she looked up at me and she said, No. It was the right thing to do. She looked like she needed help.